Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, commemorating 75 years since the end of the Pacific War in August 1945. In this week's programme, I talk with the chairman of the Hong Kong Ex-Servicemen's Association, Albert Lam, about the late Battle of Hong Kong veteran Peter Choi, who died recently at the age of 98. Then the late civil servant and respected amateur historian Chan Soi Jung, or SJ to his friends, talks about being a child during the war, both in Hong Kong and then later on the mainland. We hear the voices of two women who were in the Stanley civilian internment camp at the time of the surrender and when Admiral Harcourt comes to visit at the flag raising. And finally, in today's programme, from the late senior architect and the father of Hong Kong's post-war public housing, Michael Wright, about his time in prison camp and his reaction to hearing that the war was finally over. Peter Choi joined the British Army in 1941. He died recently at the age of 98 and was one of the last two Hong Kong veterans of the Second World War here. Albert Lam, the chairman of the Hong Kong Ex-Servicemen's Association, knew him well. I get to know Peter many, many years before he was a committee of the World War II Veteran Association. At that time, the chairman was Maximo Chang. And then uh, later on, after Matt passed away, Peter been elected to be the president of the World War II Veteran Association. And since then, we, we worked together closely for many remembrance services, uh, receiving visitors from overseas to Hong Kong, and also uh, talking to local students about the history of Hong Kong, etc. What was Peter like? Oh, uh, to be honest, he's very healthy, quite fit, speak loud, if you, I re- if you remember. He <laughs> had, and maybe everybody say because he was a gunner, because every gunner speak loud, you know. <laughs> there was a joke in the army, say, uh, gunners never die, they just speak louder and louder. <laughs> so during the defence of Hong Kong in December 1941, do you know where Peter Choi was? He joined the Royal Artillery in September 1941. So he underwent recruit training at Limun Barrett, trained to be a gunner. So when the Japanese invaded Hong Kong on the 8th of December, his instructor told them, all right, boys, I know you are only halfway of your recruit training. Now you have to learn less of the skill at the battery. So you you will be uh, on posting tomorrow to different gun position. So Peter was posted to the anti-aircraft gun position in Gailongwan, a place near Wafuchun, Lam area. Uh, at that time, they uh, actually uh, been air raid or, uh, by the Japanese bomber, and they actually, it was true, they actually shot down a reconnaissance plane in, in that area. So he's quite a, a young man then. As I say, he passed away recently at age of 98. So this is in December, or just in the run-up. He's being trained, and then obviously uh, the, the invasion comes on the 8th of December 1941. So he was involved in the defence of Hong Kong. What did he tell you about that? He never been prisoner of war, took part in a battle, so... The western part of Hong Kong, uh, the Japanese never went that far. So when the surrender order came, 
the officer in the battery just tell the Chinese, okay, boys, you can go because as you go out of the battery, you, you make into the, the local then. Yeah, so they it took their uniforms off, right? Uh, they took the uniform off, get in, uh, changed into CV, so he chose to leave Hong Kong and then went into China. Yes, and what did he do in China? Peter, in China, he also been enlisted by the British Army A Group. And uh, in BAAG, he was one of the agents until very much the end of the war. So he was an agent in China or he came back into Hong Kong to spy? Started uh, in China. He then later on, when he knew that the Japanese actually don't have the... Uh, don't get in that far about finding all those uh, servicemen's records. So he came back to Hong Kong. And so when he was actually, what did the BAAG task him with doing? What were they interested in for him to find out in Hong Kong? The BAAG in that three years and eight month time actually were quite active. They are in different uh, groupings and collecting information for the Allies helping the, the pirates to bomb Hong Kong or collecting information, or helping people from Hong Kong, either those who escaped from the prisoner or war camp or other, to cross the border into free China. And Peter was involved in that, Peter Choi? Not as active as that, but actually he is working to collect uh, information uh, where he nearby. He didn't quite disclose quite detail, but he says he just get involved in the BAAG. Right. That is why every year he's now laying the the reef on the Remembrance Day or other Remembrance Services. He's always laying the reef of BAAG. I also saw recently a picture of him actually with uh, shaking the hand of uh, Justin Trudeau, the, the Canadian Prime Minister, and that would have been at Saiwan at uh, the start of December when the, there's always the remembrance there at Saiwan Cemetery. Yeah. But in terms of Peter, so that's during the war, he helped serve with the BAAG. And then I read a profile done by Bernice Chan of the South China Morning Post recently, and it said that Peter would later get married and had seven children, but that his wife... Uh, passed away in 1963, so he actually brought up uh, a lot of children by himself. Correct, correct. He, his wife uh, passed away, well, nearly uh, 50 years ago, and he uh, he raised up seven children. He's a very hard-working man, and uh, he never get married again. After the war, he, he'd been a bus driver, and at later days, say in the 70s, uh, the 80s, he was helping somebody to look after a large fleet of taxis. Basically, they oh, taxis. Taxi. Now he's not driving, but to you know, tax uh, is quite a, quite a work to get the taxi driver organized. They normally work in two shifts: the day shift and the night shift. So uh, they have they must find a place somewhere in downtown. So in the busy street, uh, so, so from one shift to collect the rent of the day and then for the second shift to take over. He actually helped quite a lot of servicemen during the weekend or when they are on leave to dry tax around and earn some pocket money themselves. Ah, oh, I see. A lot of people have been working for Peter in those days. Albert Lam there, the chairman of the Hong Kong Ex-Servicemen's Association, talking about the late veteran Peter Choi. Former senior civil servant and amateur historian Chan Soi Jiang died in January 2018.
He was a forthright and erudite man with a good sense of humour and plenty of knowledge to share. He helped lay the foundations for research on wartime Hong Kong and wrote about the Chinese guerrilla forces who fought against the Japanese occupation forces here in the Second World War. In the following segment, S.J. Chan talks to me about what it was like to be a child in the war. He remembers having itchy skin due to malnutrition in Hong Kong before his family moved to the mainland, where food was easier to come by. His education was a little nomadic. Again, we resumed school, but it's only a few months. Again, it was interrupted. And then we went to Yunnan. I went to Kui, uh, Kunming in Yunnan. Again, we started school. I remember distinctly, the school was very near the airport runway. So much so that every 10 minutes or so, the plane's landing, the B-29 landing, were interrupt our schooling. And the school itself, the premises, actually were in a run-down temple, a temple for God of Fortune. I still, I, 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 I still, I could still find it today in Mountain. So you were working out of a temple or studying out of a temple and you had B-29. That's, that's Well, that must have been very good for any boys who wanted to be aircraft spotters. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, the temple is still there. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> now, having had that experience, um, you would then later return to, to Hong Kong, I mean, immediately, or did you stay in the mainland for a while? My father was in the air section of the BAG and his commandant, Sir Lindsay Wright eventually became Brigadier Sir Lindsay Wright returned to Hong Kong I think he wanted to return to Hong Kong together with the British Army but uh, he, he had to depend on aircraft seat provided by Americans he came only I think when the Japanese surrendered on August 15 I think he came one week after and my father came very shortly after my father returned on September the 2nd 1945 and then his job was to arrest the collaborators and seize the documents, but he came a bit late. In fact, that many of the documents were burned by the Japanese. In fact, and uh, he, he arrested quite a few of the collaborators, mm -hmm. and uh, and then the families. There were about at least three hundred family members of the BAG members, and as well as what we call it, there was another parallel group called BMM British Military Mission. Uh, family members and other hundred or odd and then well the Hong Kong government very good and then provided a British army captain Captain Watts a member with arms machine guns etc assault rifles etc and provided something like 25 lorries converted into beds or whatnot and drove all the way from Kunming back to Guangzhou in fact and I remember distinctly my family, my mother and the children, arrived back on December 10th, 1945. Yeah, what was it like coming back into Hong Kong? Ah, <laughs> interesting. It was very different from Kunming. In Kunming, with money, you can buy everything, with food. But Hong Kong was under ration. Rice, kerosene, flour, bread. Remember, bread. We couldn't and there was black market everything, everywhere. Rice was under ration, you know. And uh, again, we couldn't, we, we couldn't, we couldn't get enough rice. So and so that um, we subsisted on bread and butter. So even up to this very day, <laughs> I couldn't stand bre bread and butter. 
Really? We had too much of it mm -hmm. yeah. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And not enough rice and other things. No. Mm -hmm. Just, it was on the ration mm -hmm. for nearly two years. Mm -hmm. So you come back to, you came back to Hong Kong in December 1945. Were many of the buildings bombed at that point? Totally. One could see, one could see um, Central from Happy Valley all the way. All the building in Hennessy Road, Johnson Road, bombed flat. Apparently, um, the um, U.S. Air Force, 14 Air Force, was trying to bomb the um, Admiralty building, what they call the um, Naval Dockyard. And then it was before the time of uh, precision bombing, and they missed it by about a minute, and then raised the entire, entire uh, uh, one chai all the way up to Admiralty. Flat, totally. There was not one building standing, I remember, first thing. Second, I remember, all the hills in Hong Kong were bare because the people took away every tree, every piece of vegetation, everything, in fact. Even up to 1949 or 1950, when Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong University had its first graduation ceremony, uh, the, Gregory, uh, the congregation were assembling in, um, in the Walker Lock New Hall then, the roof <laughs> was bare. There was no roof, and the and the ground, the platform, was bare. I remember distinctly, the vice chancellor had to make a speech because my my brother, my elder brother, was graduated from class. I I went in a little boy with my another brother to take pictures of him. So things were very difficult for a number of years after the end of the war here. A number of years, a number of years. And I remember um, there were probably Red Cross. From UK and from the Americans, what called and the United Nations UNRWA, um, who donated old crossings, milk powder to Hong Kong children. I was a beneficiary of that. Old crossings, <laughs> old clothes, milk powder, warm, warm clothing, warm sorry, warm clothing. Yeah milk powder, yeah, to the children here. I've heard also from other people who, there was one British Navy man that I interviewed a number of years ago who um, said that uh, when he came in, it, his job was to refix the phone lines, get the electrics all up and running. I remember distinctly that there were no policemen in the street. There were young naval rating with long, with rifles who were standing guard of policemen in the street for over a year, in fact, in the street corners, in fact. Did Hong Kong get back on its feet fairly quickly, or was there...? Well, relatively, apparently, um, compared with other cities in Asia, it got back quickly, compared with Manila and Singapore, got back very quickly. I remember when we returned schooling, uh, one of the great news we heard what they, uh, was that, oh, at last, at last, the trams were running all the way to Kennedy Town. Because initially, trams were running what like a modified kind of surface up to only central market, that sort of thing. Chan Soi-jung there. S.J. Chan wrote a book on the work of the Chinese guerrillas in wartime Hong Kong called East River Column, Hong Kong Guerrillas in the Second World War and After. Barbara Anslow was a British stenographer who first came to Hong Kong in 1927 at the age of eight. Her father was an electrical engineer in the naval dockyard. The family would stay for two years and then return in 1938 when her father was reassigned. 
During the Japanese military occupation, Barbara Anslow was in the Stanley civilian internment camp, and her diary account of that time was published by Blacksmith Books in more recent times. It's called Tin Hats and Rice. I interviewed Barbara Anslow a couple of years ago, where she told me about the air raids and then later the sense of celebration at the end of the war. In the following short segment, we hear from a former RTHK broadcaster, Aileen Woods, who was also interned at the Stanley Camp. When the war did end, the first day that it ended, in on August the 30th, 1945, a radio was brought into the camp, and we all heard it. All I remember was crying when we heard when we heard Big Ben. The following excerpt is taken from Barbara Anslow's diary. It's the end of September, and there's great excitement at Stanley Camp at the arrival of Admiral Harcourt and the British fleet. Nineteen heavy planes have just flown over us, and most people are up on the roof because they say the fleet can be seen entering Leumun. But I can't see well enough, so no good going. 7 p.m. Here I am sitting on the fourth floor of the French Mission, overlooking St John's Cathedral. At 2 p.m. at Stanley, Miss Grace Ezra, the government stenographer, came and told me to be ready to go to town at 5 p.m. Family helped carry my folded camp bed and meagre belongings down to the ration dump, where transport was supposed to come. But when we arrived, the transport had apparently left. Planes were zooming about. Then a car drove through the gate and out stepped the civil servant who was acting camp commandant now that Mr Franklin Gimson was in town. Then in came two cars. The first contained Admiral Harcourt in full fig and Mr Gimson, who's now governor. Then some marines on small amphibians, all looking so huge and healthy, their white starch uniforms gleaming and their faces so pink that it looked as if they were wearing makeup. Now I threw duty to the winds and dashed up the road to join the crowds. The Admiral made a short speech, short he said, because he had to get to other places in the Far East. The national anthem was sung as the flags were raised. The Admiral and his retinue drove off and I went back to my station near the gate and found several more government servants waiting for transport, which turned out to be an ancient bus with no glass in the windows and holes in the wooden floor. As it drove us away from Stanley through puddles, water splashed up between the floorboards. Stubbs Road in an awful mess. The Gap Road flats where we Redwoods had lived until the Japanese attack had been bombed. Japanese were visible in Wellington Barracks in Queen's Road. British sailors were in the naval dockyard barracks. We all waved frantically. The bus stopped at the steps up to Battery Path. We went up the path to the French Mission. This building had now been commandeered for government quarters and offices. We had dinner downstairs. Lovely, comfortable chairs with arms, flowers on table, soup, mashed potato, hamburger, fried eggplant. Sweet course I couldn't face but had room for coffee with milk and sugar. Listen to the radio at 10.30pm. So that evening, I heard ZBW, and there was um, an American journalist called George Murad, and he made a broadcast. And we were a bit indignant, because among the things he said was that you can see an internee a mile away, and went on to say how awful we all looked. And we were very indignant about that because we didn't know we looked awful. And then that night, that, was, that must have been the first day that 
Um, well, of course, that was when the radio restarted. That night, we were still listening to the radio after George Moore, and then Tim Fortescue, who was one of the secretaries to the governor before the war, he was on ZBW, and he said, good night to you all, and that was a wonderful feeling to think that we were back in the land of the living again, you know. Barbara Anslow there, who died last October. Barbara published her diary with blacksmith books called Tin Hats and Rice. That diary excerpt actually came from the excellent Hong Kong history website grulo.com, which not only has a number of Hong Kong prisoner of war diaries that you can read, but also the creator behind Grulo, David Bellis, is also providing daily emails of those events post-war 75 years ago. He says if any listeners would like to follow the post-war events, if they can send an email to david at grulo.com with the subject 75. I'll add them to the list so they'll get the daily emails. Michael Wright was born in Hong Kong in 1912. He was one of the main architects of post-war public housing in the city and later became the director of Hong Kong's Public Works Department. I met him at his home in London in September 2017 for a couple of interviews about his life. He was 105. He passed away in early 2018. Ahead of the Japanese military invasion, Michael Wright joined the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps in the artillery, serving in the 2nd and 4th Battery. He was stationed at Aplay Chow. After Hong Kong's surrender on December the 25th, 1941, Michael Wright spent three years and eight months in two prisoner-of-war camps, four months at Sham Shui Po, before being moved to the officers' camp in Isle Gyle Street. Yeah, we could get paper, yes, we get paper. The Japanese were quite good with, uh, with paper. About once a month they brought in a canteen and you could buy things like toilet paper and pencils and uh, little things like that. The man who ran this thing had been a barber in the Hong Kong Hotel and he was quite a shock to see there was a man been cutting my hair and he came in in Japanese uniform with this lorry with things for us to buy. And, um, I mean, throughout that time, and when, when you look back, I mean, it was three years, eight months, you were a relatively young man. Were you afterwards a bit embittered at this lost time in your life? No. No, because I think I kept myself doing things, whether it was learning Chinese, designing buildings, I kept myself occupied the whole time. I was quite glad when we got out. So, in a way, I was giving some lectures on building construction to one or two, uh, the Batman actually, we had, we had other ranks as Batman. I was really, in, in a way, got involved with this, and I was quite, quite sorry when the war finished, what interfered with my course of instruction. You know, you got very much involved with what you were doing. I mean, obviously, I, it was a very passing regret, but the important thing is, to, as long as you kept yourself mentally occupied, it wasn't a hardship. With Singapore falling, how did you know about that? Because the Japanese brought in newspapers with the news, and it was bad news, they were always bringing the newspaper. We had a system where we were having a Chinese newspaper smuggled in, well, I think it was brought in by one of the centuries, and there was a man called Ken Barnett, who was a, an oddball in a way, he was a brilliant Chinese scholar, and he began translating this newspaper. And one day he approached me and said, what's your shorthand speed? And I said, I think about 40 words a minute. Well, he said, I think I can read the newspaper at about that speed. Do you mind 
coming with me, and um, and there was my senior officer, my battery commander, was also learning shorthand with me. And the two of us, we took it in turns, and we were going with a chap, Ken Barnett, into a hut, and he could read this paper. And we literally took it down in shorthand, and then we would go around the huts to read the news, which was the news of the Japanese papers. But it did give the European news and the Russian front news genuinely. I mean, as far as the um, Japanese news, they're always great victories, but we noticed the victories got nearer and nearer Japan. <laughs> but on the uh, European front, they were genuine. Your memory is superb, but I'm asking you to go back 72 years. When you heard that the war was over, what were your emotions? Dead. You know, I think one was so mentally controlled. Nobody did just a good God, you know. Japanese surrendered. It, it was that. There was no cheering, no excitement at all. I think we had just got so much control over our emotions at the time in the prison camp. There was, there was no great excitement. The, the main excitement was the Japanese brought in a lot of alcohol, brought in bottles of whiskey, bottles of gin, bottles of vermouth. The senior officers who were running the camp didn't let anybody just get to the bottle. We, we could queue up and get a ration of whiskey and, and even with that a few people drank too much and had to have stomach pumps to get them but most people drank sensibly and we celebrated with a couple of whiskey waters. We knew the war was over because we saw the, the Japanese sentries, all they began being very friendly and also um, we saw them in front of a, listening to a broadcast table with a white cloth on it and clearly there was something going on then one or two people to be on working parties other ranks were shouting across the walls over we were getting a newspaper smuggled in that had the emperor's speech had a text of the emperor's speech and so when the officer japanese officer came in we had to be counted twice a day it was nine o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the evening we had to fall in and be counted nine o'clock the camp commandant Japanese officer came in and our senior British officer said there won't be a parade today and this camp commandant said why? He said because the war's over and so he said now what we want, we want the number one Colonel Tokunaga, we want, want him this afternoon to come in and we want proper food, we want working parties to go out to collect um, proper food and you've got to lay this on and just gave a lot of instructions and we stayed in the, in the camp for another week or ten days because very sensibly we weren't allowed out. We were allowed out in, in proper organised parties to get food and also they quickly arranged uh, for about 30, 40 going out each day to Stanley to see their wives and relatives and so on in, in the in civilian camp. This was organised very, very quickly. And, and uh, right at the end, <clears throat> after two weeks, I, I had no, no relatives in Stanley, but um, I had friends there, and so I qualified at the end, end of August to go on a, a trip to Stanley, which was quite exciting. And particularly when, when we were there, the fleet came in. We had lorries with the Japanese driver, and we were just in the back of the lorry and get sh shipped off to Stanley. And coming back, though, instead of coming into the South Ferry, we went into the dockyard, which had been occupied by the Navy. These sailors, the great, they had got ham sandwiches and lemonade, sensibly no alcohol. 
but Cam Savage, no doubt, 20, 25, I was just caused ourselves <laughs> stupid with them. Uh, and then, then we... Um, so ham sandwiches and lemonade provided by... By the Navy, by these sailors. So they were Americans uh, or British? They, they were British. The, from, from the, the fleet came in and big there were a couple of battleships and an aircraft carrier. It was a wonderful fleet, the Hong Kong Harbour, with this really big Far Eastern fleet there. Michael Wright bringing an end to today's programme. You heard the voices of Albert Lamb on Peter Choi, then the late civil servant and respected amateur historian Chan Soi Jung, former Stanley Camp internees Aileen Wood and Barbara Anslow, and the late Michael Wright. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>